Welcome to the Religious Feminism Podcast. This is a special holiday episode of the podcast, and today we're going to be talking about the nativity story and its implications for feminism. So I will let my guest introduce herself. Hi, I'm Kimberly Peeler Ringer. I'm the creator of the Church Feminist blog, www.thechurchfeminist.com, where I write about healing Black women from the church hurt that has hurt us in the past. And a lot of it has to do with patriarchy, uh, that $10 word that simply talks about the privileging of manhood. And although patriarchy is the default setting for the world the Bible was written in, patriarchy is not the default setting for the message that the Bible is giving to the world. And it's not the message of the Bible. Of the Bible. So I see myself as a digital pastor of sorts. I provide alternative uh, interpretations of scripture that have been used to oppress us in patriarchal churches. Um, many churches have multiple layers of oppression that must be dealt with, but particularly when it comes to women in ministry. Uh, my job and my ministry is to show that you can be Christian and feminist. And if a woman could carry the word of God in her womb, she can certainly carry it in her mouth. Can you tell us a little bit about what faith community you participate in and what feminist community? Sure. Um, I worship in the United Church of Christ denomination. I am a licensed minister. I'm not an ordained minister, which means I can preach and teach, but I can't marry people. <laughs> I view myself as a black feminist because my struggle and our struggles for liberation are markedly different from those of white feminists who in the past have excluded black women's voices and black women's experiences from the feminist narrative. Uh, in terms of religion, there's womanist theology that seeks not to replace feminist theology, but rather it uses and privileges the experiences of Black women to construct theology, a theology that addresses our particular experiences. Uh, black women experience a type of misogyny that is specific to us, and we call it misogyn war. Uh, it's a type of oppression that is exclusive to Black women in America. So the goal for us as women in ministry who are feminists is to form an ethical agenda that responds to the race, class, heteronormative, non-gender conforming issues that we face in our communities. I, for one, believe God is a welcoming God who is inclusive and not exclusive. And I believe in that same God. So. I am so excited to have you here on the podcast. Now, today, since it is getting close to the holidays, we're having a special holiday episode. And so we're gonna talk a little bit about the nativity story. Can you tell me a little bit about your favorite parts of the nativity story? My favorite parts of the nativity story occur in the gospel of Luke. Uh, as a Bible scholar, I find that so many of our worship traditions, particularly Christmas, are found in the books of Luke Acts. Um, this notion of Jesus being born in a manger with shepherds looking on, uh, Mary's Magnificat, Mary's Song of Praise liturgy, my soul does magnify the Lord in Luke chapter 1, verses 47 through 55. It's important to note we have the testimony of a woman celebrating her relationship with God in the sacred text. And if you can imagine a church calendar without ascension 
or Pentecost, the Gospel of Luke provides a comprehensive birth announcement in the very first chapter in verses 26 through 38. And so what I get out of that and what makes this my favorite part of nativity story is that the first thing we find out about God is that God is okay with womanhood, that God has found favor in a particular woman that I really hesitate to call a woman, really probably a teenage girl, and that God is applauding a teenage girl growing up in a patriarchal background is worth mentioning and worth celebrating. Yeah, I love how in Luke we read Mary's words, and it's not just a few words, it's basically a whole discourse that we hear in Mary's words. And we don't hear that a lot in other scripture. We don't see much of a woman actually speaking and giving theology the way Mary does in Luke. So I love that part too. Very important to remember that much of what is put on the lips of women is scripture is not from a woman herself, but rather as a man has interpreted her saying. So the fact that Mary is speaking here in her own voice is worth elevation for just that reason. Because as you know, most of the women in scripture aren't even bothered to be named. Right, let alone quoted. They don't even name them. Let alone quoted. (laughs) And Mary has a name and she's given, you know, eyewitness testimony of her own. And what I like about Mary is that she's one of the few women who can say she was present for the beginning of Jesus's ministry and the end of it. The whole time. What do you think are some ways that we can be inspired as Christian feminists by the nativity story? Well, the fact that it, the greatest story of our time that through Jesus the Christ, God has made provision for our redemption and for our repair, a story that is not only presented to us through the perspectives of two women, Elizabeth and Mary, in the Gospel of Luke, but it's also framed by an experience exclusive to women, and that is pregnancy. And that is remarkable considering the time that this is happening in, where women could not initiate divorce, you know, where women probably didn't even choose their husbands, their husbands were chosen for them. We're we're looking at women's stories being privileged and pushed to the forefront of the Gospel of Luke. And I just want to say one more thing about the Gospel of Luke, if I could, because it's really important. Um, The Gospel of Luke is important to us because it is showing us how the world should be, not how the world is. And you see this by the focus on women in, in this gospel. You see this on the focus on the rich and the poor dynamics. And you see this in the focus on helping people who need our help. Um, the Gospel of Luke is famous for its parables, and one of the most important on this regard is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in the parable of the Good Samaritan, if we were to speak of that in terms of a 21st century reality, we might call it the parable of the good clansman. It would be something we could hardly identify as good. And yet in this parable, Jesus is saying clearly that anyone who needs you is your neighbor. And that's important because the people who were supposed to help this poor gentleman passed on by, but it was the one who was considered an outsider, an outcast, someone who does not have a seat at the table, is the one who helps him. 
shows us that this whole gospel message is really about those on the outskirts of society being seen, being appreciated by Jesus, and doing the right thing, the world as it ought to be. Do you think that perspective is really unique to Luke? That the other gospels don't exactly have that kind of perspective? Other gospels do, but I think Luke does it more in the sense that, for example, uh, like the gospel of Mark is really a straight way trying to show you that Jesus is the Messiah. You know, it's someone who's just very quickly getting to the point. It's like, you did this, 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 and this, amen. You know, <laughs> and the gospel of Matthew is really more towards showing Jewish hearers that Jesus is the Messiah of their history. And the gospel of John, of course, is unique in and of itself because it's called, as you know, the most spiritual gospel and really has very lengthy discourses with women who often are the ones who get it <clears throat> and the men don't, which is, you know, an, another fun thing <laughs> we can unpack maybe on another podcast. But in the gospel of Luke, this seems more inclusive of outsiders. And that's so important when we think about what's happening in the world today. And here we have the story, the greatest story being told through this framing of outsiders being brought in from, you know, a woman with no, a young girl with no agency is being tasked with bringing Emmanuel, God with us into the world. And that is pretty powerful considering. So yes, all of the gospels do it. But as far as the nativity is concerned and the <laughs> holiday readings of scripture, because let's face it, without the gospel of Luke, we don't really know much about uh, Jesus's childhood. You know, Luke has the most information about a young Jesus and how Jesus came into this world. Uh, without Luke, there wouldn't be much to go on for Christmas pageants. You know, what would you do? <laughs> Yes. And speaking of Christmas pageants, that kind of leads me to the next question I had. For those of us who do do Christmas pageants or nativity retellings or other kinds of celebrations around the nativity at Christmas time, what are some things we can do to keep that feminist perspective in mind? Remember that this whole narrative of Jesus's birth does not start with his being born, but rather it starts with the young girl giving consent to God's will. The Gospel of Luke introduces us to Mary by highlighting her consent or rather her submission to the will of God. And as feminists, we can certainly come together and bicker about, well, I shouldn't use the word bicker. We can come together and discuss whether or not God would have honored Mary's no to begin with. Did she really have a choice here? You know, what if Mary said, no, and I, I just want to marry Joseph and bear children only for him? Would God have honored that? But one of the ways we can keep this uh, as a feminist perspective in the forefront is that it's a perfect teaching opportunity to teach men and children and women about consent. And consent is so important because God's, she, Gabriel comes to Mary and asks for consent before this supernatural thing happens in her body. And it sets the stage for the author of Luke, who I mentioned is presenting the Christ story through the depiction of a world as it ought to be, because women are so prominently featured in Luke. We're barely two minutes into Luke before we hear about Elizabeth and Mary. 
who are cousins. And Jesus focuses his ministry on outsiders, on the excluded, on the disadvantaged, and lots of attention is given to this. And it's amazing that 2000 plus years later, these are still prominent social issues. So that is one way of easing into the Christmas story with a feminist trajectory in mind, if you will. Yeah, how many other places do we read a story where it begins with asking for consent? Exactly. <laughs> this is what God wants to do with you. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> you know. I mean, it's a, it is a lot to take in. And she said, what, you know, be it done to me according to God's will. I mean, that's really breathtaking. And I don't know if it's she did it out of fear or she did it because, you know, this is God and there is no wrestling with God. God's going to get what God wants. But just the fact that it's presented to her, it, it, just, it didn't happen afterwards. Do you know what I'm saying? Like right. she didn't find herself to be pregnant. And then an angel comes and says, oh, by the way, God, what's going God's on here. child. Right, exactly. <laughs> you will be great. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, and I love how you use the term consent instead of submission, which I think we commonly also use when we're talking about Mary in the story. Right, and she right. didn't just submit, she consented. Exactly. She consents to what's going to happen. And not only that, she becomes a disciple of Jesus herself while Jesus is still alive. And that is more than we can say for a lot of the disciples who simply just don't get it until you know, they see the resurrected Jesus and then, oh, he was not joking about that, you know, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rise up again. I'll raise it up again. So, um, it, and in the gospel of John and particularly, I love it how it's women who get it, but men don't. For example, you see Nicodemus wondering how can someone be born again, you know, and Jesus is like, well, you're a teacher of Israel. How is it you don't know these things? And then in the very next chapter, a woman, an outsider, a Samaritan, she gets it right away. I see that you are a prophet. You know, so I love that in terms of when when you offer different reading points of departure, it really enriches the text rather than having it interpreted for you as the sole point of what makes this scripture and why we have to abide by it. I thank you for the opportunity to just talk about this because it's very important to me to be able to share different points of view about who God is, because I simply believe that God's face is a composite of all of us and not just some of us. And that there is nothing that God has in common with masculinity that God doesn't also have in common with femininity. And I know that, you know, we've gotten used to speaking of God as male, as he, as, you know, but if God is everything that we profess God to be, it's almost insulting to refer to God as he, <laughs> you know, and I'm not saying that we should just say he or she, what I'm saying is let's just broaden our image of God because all of us are part of that image. We all are part of the composite of God's quilt. What a-